Welcome to Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. Welcome to Episode 4 Applying to Otolaryngology Residency. My guest today is Dr. Scott Mann. Scott completed medical school and residency here at the University of Colorado. A glutton for punishment, he then decided to stay on as faculty, practicing first at the VA and now at Denver Health, which is a safety net hospital. Scott has an interest in endoscopic ear surgery, resident education, simulation, and quality. He has done a wonderful job as an associate program director for our residency program and helps keep me in line. Scott is married to another physician and has two lovely daughters. Welcome, Scott, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me more about your role in the Department of Otolaryngology. Chiefly, I'm a clinical faculty, and so I spend nearly every day either in the operating room or in the, in the clinic, essentially teaching residents and medical students through actual clinical contact. But in addition to that, I also have roles in mentoring scholarly projects like quality improvement or research, clinical research. And I'm also the associate program director. I picked up that role about a year ago. And my chief roles in that are managing the resident curriculum, as well as playing a key part of the uh, interview and recruitment process during the, the residency match. Yeah, and I've really appreciated you joining me on this journey where I became program director about a year ago and you became associate because you've just been incredibly helpful as a sounding board and also just these projects that you're doing. I have no idea how to do quality improvement curriculum, so I'm so <laughs> glad that you're taking that on. So let's go back to before you were living the dream. How did you first decide to apply to otolaryngology? My sort of journey to otolaryngology was based on the fact that I had a hard time choosing what I wanted. When I was a medical student, I loved almost everything I, I did in my clinical rotations, whether it was internal medicine, surgery, psychiatry. It was just basically everything I did I could find myself being happy in. And I really struggled with that sort of choice of final differentiation of what are you going to do for the rest of your life. And when I sought out uh, mentors or people that I really respected and talked to them about this issue, they tried to steer me towards fields that had a really robust diversity within the field. Otolaryngology was a little bit of a surprise for me. I always felt it was sort of this quirky, you know, specialized field. The more I looked into it, the more I realized that although it's anatomically narrowed, it is intellectually so diverse. And you get to take care of all kinds of people, everywhere from infants to geriatrics. You get to take care of a wide range of pathology. You get to be an orthopedic surgeon one day. You get to be a, an oncologist another day, rheumatologist, infectious disease. You get to basically deal with any kind of pathology you can imagine from the clavicle up. And uh, that sort of intellectual diversity was um, what really led me to that. That and the fact that I knew I wanted to do something that involves surgery or procedural skills. Yeah. So uh, today's podcast is really about mentoring medical students who are considering applying to this field, which we both clearly think is the best field out there. Um, so let's first talk about the state of the otolaryngology match during the last couple of years. Uh, can you comment on, you know, how competitive it is, like what's been happening over the last few years? So, yes, it is competitive. Um, there's not really an easy way around that particularly this past year in the uh, 2019 match. 
we had had growing numbers of applications over the last several years. And so otolaryngology as a field um, was really exploring ways of trying to reduce the number of applications so that we could really hone down our recruitment to people that were excellent candidates that were truly interested in our specific programs. And so they had implemented some um, policies like the program-specific paragraph and things like that. Um, And so in the 2017 and in the 2018 match, the number of applications went down. The competitiveness of each application was still very high and rising. But because of the lower numbers, we ended up with sort of a surprising number of unfilled spots. You know, 2017 was 14, 2018 was 12, the spots around the country that actually went unfilled. And that's uncharacteristic for our field. I think because of that, the word sort of got out. A lot of people saw this as an opportunity to maybe get into the field. And so, again, the application numbers have ballooned a bit. The pendulum has swung. And in 2019, we had zero unfilled spots and an extremely competitive applicant field. Yeah, so last year uh, was the first year that you reviewed applications um, as associate program director and selected who we would interview and also participate in all the interviews. Uh, what what surprised you about either the screening process or the interview process or any of those things? I think my first surprise was just the um, the overall just higher level of accomplishment than I had initially expected. And it had been a number of years since I had gone through this process. And I couldn't help feel like, man, I wouldn't have gotten an interview if I had been in this applicant pool. I think that's a common feeling amongst a lot of faculty members and that just the level of accomplishment is really impressive out there in the medical schools of our country and the students that we're seeing. The other surprise, though, that goes along with that is that you're sort of faced with this huge stack of applications from all over the country. And the the surprise was how time intensive it was to open someone's application and try to get a genuine sense for who that person was and whether or not they were legitimately interested in otolaryngology as well as your or your program and sort of how you differentiate between that applicant and the four under other applications that you're you're looking through. It's really not an easy task, and uh, I think it's something that probably program directors and associate program directors struggle with all over the country. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we as a program don't have a cutoff score for the step one. Some programs do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we feel that we need to look at the global application, the global applicant to really determine whether they would be a good fit for us. So, And I certainly uh, agree with like having that sort of holistic view of the applicant will allow you to find some really spectacular candidates that otherwise may have not reached some sort of benchmark. But it is very time intensive. Yeah, it is because of that. You know, it'd be easier to just say, okay, anyone who doesn't have a 275 can't yeah. come here. But <laughs> yeah, that, that wouldn't that wouldn't help us. What advice do you have for applicants who are putting together their application? What would you encourage them to do to help make their application stand out or make it a successful application? You know, when I was going through this process, again, it was many years ago, but I didn't kind of figure out that I wanted to do otolaryngology until a little bit late in the game. I was already halfway through my third year. And I do feel like they're, when I'm mentoring medical students, that is not uncommon, that they don't quite figure out that they, they're going to make this leap into ENT until um, they've had a chance to, to see all the rotations or whatnot. That is a challenge. It puts you a little bit of a, at a disadvantage because I would say that although... 
accomplishments in the first two years are really important. One of the things that is looked at really specifically by programs is that scholarly productivity. And that's what you really like have to get on as early as possible. Now, what I would say is that when you're in your third year, probably the most important thing you should be focusing on is being successful in whatever rotation you're in at that time. Because grades matter, yes, but also really just making yourself stand out and um, really excelling at all the different clinical skills just pays dividends moving forward. But that being said, try to carve out some time to get a little bit of clinical research or get your name on a poster or a paper or something along those lines, because those are the things that really start to differentiate the field, so to speak. When you're looking at a big group of applications, the people that have have actually been productive and actually have finished projects, not just had experiences or started projects, but the finishers are the ones that really kind of stand out. And you can tell who those people are because they have more posters, they have more presentations, they have more publications. And it's not because they spend a lot of time just getting that one thing done. It's that they have a their finishers on a routine basis. Yeah. Any advice about letters of recommendation? So I think letters obviously you want good ones. <laughs> yeah. You wanna you wanna be selective. You don't wanna ask someone that you think is gonna give you a, a mediocre letter of recommendation. It's important to have your chairman write one, your program director, people that are within the medical education or administration of otolaryngology. But then you really want to try to pick people that know you well. You know, it's kind of tempting if you have a big name in your department, someone who's known around the country, that letter can really carry some weight. But if that person doesn't really know you or is going to write you a kind of a form letter, it might not be worth it. And so I, I would advise people to really Pick someone who knows you and that um, you think can really write you that glowing letter. But clearly, if, if you do have someone that is sort of well-known in the field, man, that's gold. If you can get to know that person and make sure that they know you well and can write you a good letter, that's going to be a big leg up. So how do you know who those people are? Well, you're not going to as a medical student. You really need to use your resources of the residents and maybe your program director, the residency program director, or uh, any of the other faculty mentors you might have to kind of figure out, to strategize early, say, hey, you know, I want to I want to have some strong letters. Are there is there anybody in the department that would really like hold weight with other um, with other faculties elsewhere in the country? You'd be surprised how many people are kind of scattered through different departments that are really well known around the, the country or world um, that you might just not not even know to, to work with. How about the personal statement, right? Because that's the other piece that you can actually somewhat influence because maybe your research study just didn't get published, you know, it got rejected or something like that. But your personal statement is really all about expressing yourself. What would be your advice about that? Yeah, personal statements. Wow. I've read a lot of them. <laughs> um, I would, this might be more my personal opinion than something that would be sort of consistent throughout lots of people that review applications. I feel like too many times personal statements are about why someone wants to be an otolaryngologist, sort of what their experience was that turned their road or something like that. It's important for some, for us to know that you really want to be an otolaryngologist, but the personal statements that really stand out are the ones that are personal, the ones that don't you know rehash some story of you doing a head and neck case and made you want to and are loving the anatomy during a head and neck block. The personal statements that are really about why you're a physician, 
how you bring your passion to patient care and being an excellent surgeon and physician. Um, we know you want to do otorhinology. You're applying to a very competitive field. If that is your most personal thing is specifically about ENT, then you should write about that. But I, I feel like I get a lot of personal statements where people have sort of rehashed a sort of story as to why they want to do ENT. And I don't, I don't really finish it feeling like I learned anything about the person. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other thing I would say is I dislike, this is a pet peeve, but I dislike personal statements that have a gimmick. Like I've had uh, personal statements that compare your life to like some sort of head and neck anatomy yeah, pathway or like yeah. a personal statement <laughs> where, you know, there's a there's a sonnet right in the personal <laughs> statement. So I think that it's finding that balance between being personal, but also not being weird, right? which is hard sometimes. <laughs> so have you ever counseled an applicant not to apply? And why was that? Yes, I have. Really, what it came down to was that I didn't think that they'd get a sufficient number of interviews and excel well enough in the interview process to actually match. As much as I love this field and I can even enjoy working with someone and like them as a candidate, if I don't feel like they sort of reach that level of competitiveness, that they have a good chance at landing a spot... I usually try to be realistic with them and try to steer them in another direction because we're dealing with high-functioning young physicians that should be able to excel in almost any field. And the last thing I want is for them to be scrambling into something that they don't enjoy. And so I think it, it makes sense for them if they're at risk of not matching in the ENT match for them to, to match well in another field. So let's say you have a applicant who meets all the criteria, who you feel like has a good shot. Do you advise them to also have a backup plan? I usually don't. I've known a lot of people have done backup plans, and usually those people are actually very good candidates, and they just have a complex about it, and they, they're worried they're not going to have a spot someplace. And so they will you know, interview in internal medicine or something else along those lines. I do feel like I'm a little bit of an all or nothing type. You know, I didn't I didn't have a backup plan when I applied. The candidates are a little bit on the cusp. The ones that are they're really great people to work with. They've got good grades. Maybe their scores are a little bit low and they've only got, you know, one paper or something. And so you're a little bit concerned that um, they'd be on the cusp. Those are the ones that I'd say, you know what? Yeah, it might be a good idea to, to have a backup plan. And that backup plan can be all kinds of different things. This, again, this might be a little bit of a controversial thing that, that may not be agreed upon across the board. I have some colleagues that feel like if you pick a backup plan that's a non-surgical field, then you're probably headed the wrong direction by applying for otolaryngology. I disagree with that. Like I said, the intellectual diversity of otolaryngology is what brought me to that. And I don't think you have to be a nuts and bolts surgeon every day of your life to be a good otolaryngologist. In addition to that, there are so many procedural-based fields out there that can all spread from a residency in internal medicine, whether it's interventional cardiology, interventional pulmonology, things like that. I actually think internal medicine is a good backup plan for a lot of applicants because it's less competitive and they can still make their way to a procedural-based field that's intellectually satisfying if they don't match. 
Yeah, that, that is controversial. I, I would tend to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you're not applying to be a surgeon as your backup plan, are you really wanting to be a surgeon? Mm-hmm. Because that is, it's a five year residency. It's not three years because we're teaching you how to do surgery. So I, yeah, I agree. Again, I knew this was, be, it's this controversial, would not be but that's that good. Most people would agree with. I, you know, I'm married to an internal medicine doctor. Uh, that's my uh, disclaimer. And so I know a lot of people that are in uh, GI and interventional pulmonology and their, their job looks surprisingly similar to a surgeon's, which is why I feel like maybe we're a little too hard nosed about this, but. Well, touche, I'm married to a surgeon. So that's, <laughs> that's probably why we feel that way. So is there something on applications that you have reviewed that really stands out to you that would be a way to differentiate yourself from the pack? There's the sort of traditional things of first authorship on a published paper. That's maybe a little bit cliche to say, but I know I've, I've mentored a lot of scholarly work before. And in order for someone to be a first author, truly a first author on a published paper, this is not just sort of a gift that the mentor gives. This is something that is earned. And the, the author really has to see that project all the way from conception to all the way to publication and, and be a, a major player in every step of the way. And so I think it's great to have your name on, on lots of things. And most, a lot of applicants don't even have the opportunity to ever be first author on something. But when I do see that, I know that that person took a leadership role in that project and that they were a finisher. And so for me, that's one thing that always stands out. The other thing too is I, you, you see a lot of applicants that have sort of leadership roles or volunteer experiences and things like that. Those are all important and it really helped to round out the application um, and, and give a, uh, us a better idea of who you are as a person and what kind of uh, things you care about. But really the applicants that actually go the next level and become real leaders in that, for instance, when you see someone who's on the board of the American Medical Association as a student member, things like that, these are, are applications that you will remember two years later because the the applicant really stands out as taking that next level and becoming a leader in their field before they've even entered it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So let's talk about another controversial topic. Okay. How many applications should you submit? How many programs should you apply to? So yes, that is a controversial question. And I think depending on who you ask, you're going to get really wildly different answers. If you ask someone who is in residency administration, they are going to say they want you to apply for fewer, more selective schools because they don't want to get hundreds of applications of people that aren't truly interested. If you ask a recent medical student who's just matched, they are going to say cast as broad of a net as possible because the last thing you want is to not get interviews. I kind of fall right in the middle. I think that you do want to cast a broad net because... Every year, applicants are surprised at which programs they get interviews at and which ones they don't. They'll have in their head sort of a, well, these are sort of the lower-end programs, these are the higher-end ones, and I'll have a good mix, that sort of thing. And then you'll be surprised at some places that you thought you'd be a shoe-in for an interview, they don't, you don't get an invite. For that reason, I usually tell medical students to cast a fairly broad net, but there is a point where it becomes you know, diminishing returns. I tend to think that around 50 programs is a good number. I know currently a lot of applicants are doing 80, 100 programs. I think that's too much, but I do think that when you get into the lower numbers, like 30, 
you run the risk of not getting enough interviews. There's actually some data behind, you know, if you get a certain number of interviews, you have a really good chance of matching. That that number is somewhere around 12. And so shooting for trying to achieve about 12 interviews is a good goal. I didn't apply to near uh, 50 programs, uh, but I had a pretty uh, narrow geographical area I was interested in. But a lot of my applicants that are not tied down to geography uh, cast a broader net, and it's usually somewhere around 50, uh, 50 programs. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's hard to tell people not to apply just because you don't want to look at applications. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you submit an application, I assume that you have some interest, even if it's not a huge interest. Uh, It does make it harder, though, to figure out who's really interested in your program, though. So last question. You have two beautiful daughters. So if in, what, 10, 15, 20 years, right, Mm -hmm. Um, because they're pretty young, they came to you and said, Dad, I want to apply to otolaryngology. I love this field. What would you tell them? I would tell them, awesome. I'm so excited for you. It's going to be a little bit of a hard road. Um, what, how can I help? <laughs> That's what I'd say. That's perfect. Um, I would be excited because I think it's such an exciting field. It's, it's a wonderful way to take care of patients in a way that's intellectually stimulating and fulfilling every day. But it is a competitive field. And as long as you're up for the challenge, man, it is, it's a great place to go. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been great. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help.